Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture for today comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 37 through 42. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. The scripture story for the Garden of Gethsemane is a great story to tell for all those who fall asleep in church on a weekly basis. And just to convict you a little bit of maybe what you miss uh, when you do fall asleep um, as we're entering the time of the sermon when people sometimes do. I want to uh, acknowledge there's a question that we put online out there and for people who have been commenting on it and just for you to think about in your hearts of uh, what makes you the most tired? Uh, A lot of people thought of that as what time of the day makes the most tired and and they said, you know, 1230 on Sunday after church or uh, 430 in the afternoon after they've already been through a lot that day or 330 or so was often mentioned. Somebody just said after like a Benadryl. Um, which certainly does the trick as well. So thinking about what makes you tired? Um, what, what draws you into that same place where the disciples were when they just couldn't stay awake anymore? I want you to think about that. Um, but there's a book that I want to introduce you to if you've never heard of it. It's called Tuck Everlasting. Uh, Tuck Everlasting was a book that we were assigned in elementary school, I remember, and, and I really enjoyed reading it. There's this young girl named Winnie Foster who uh, as, a, as a young girl is playing in the woods one day and runs across this 17-year-old young man named uh, Jesse Tuck. And, and Jesse and Winnie strike up a friendship, and for whatever reason, Jesse is compelled to uh, show Winnie the family secret in the woods. And I'm not giving anything away. This is like all in the first chapter. So they uh, go into the woods, and fi- uh, Jesse introduces Winnie to this literal spring of living water. Uh, it's a spring bubbling out of the ground and tells Winnie that if you drink of this spring, you will have eternal life. You will live forever. And the entire Tuck family comes back every 10 years into the woods, into the spring, drinks in the water so they can continue living in perpetuity uh, and see all the, the wonderful things that that might involve. And so uh, I won't ruin any more of the book, but Winnie is continuously faced with this dilemma of whether to drink the water or not. Is she able to live with the knowledge of tomorrow, but still be present today? 
And I know that eternal life sounds great, and we conceptualize it in church, and we talk about it in church, and we talk about it in light of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and the resurrection opening up the opening of heaven for us, but um, living in light of eternity for the tucks also means that they have had a hundred years of experience of, uh, I think, 104 years of experience of the human condition. So they are living forever while everyone around them is dying. And they have to acknowledge that and live with the grief and the pain involved in all of that. And then as they are living forever, they're watching the decisions and the consequences coming from those decisions being made. And so um, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so they get to see an economic policy, or they get to see a behavioral impact, or they get to see a choice being made. And and it's not uh, uh, it's not something that they can live in the moment with anymore. It's something they know what's going to happen from that. And you know, as human beings, we tend to make choices that are in our own best interest, but often destructive to others. And so living forever, the Tucks have to watch decisions being made in real time, in the present day, that they know will lead to pain and suffering tomorrow. The idea of eternal life, it sounds like maybe you'd have this divine perspective on everything and it would give you this peace about what comes later in the story or what comes eventually in the story that you could never be harmed at all. But it also comes with what well, comes with Winnie being invited into the garden and kneeling down in agony because, well, would you be able to live today knowing everything that can come in the future? That's a hard spot to be in. But when he is invited to sit with Jesus in the midst of this divine perspective of eternity, but the agony of today. Jesus is this fully human, fully divine figure, and Garden of Gethsemane really points this out. So let me backtrack a little bit from the Garden to the Last Supper, uh, a little bit where Jesus is, or even before the Last Supper, Palm Sunday even, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, so this is, the, this is the divine part of Jesus. He tells his disciples to go into a city, I mean Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him. And why this is uh, part of that divine perspective is that in Jerusalem, in first century Palestine, uh, men didn't carry water cisterns. That was a woman's job. So the women would go up in the morning, they would grab the water uh, jugs, the cisterns, and they would then carry them through the city back to their house uh, for the daily use. And so a man carrying this would have been extremely, extremely rare. And there's a lot of people who think that this is like the James Bond spy code that Jesus is setting up the Last Supper in secret, and he has it all planned out. And we see where Jesus has many things either planned out or he knows what's going to happen. Um, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Um, you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And even well before the Last Supper, we have Jesus talking about his own death, that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is the very logical Jesus. This is the Jesus who says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, who connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. And for all the really engineer-type brains in the world, they love this Jesus. And for all the people who need a lot of confidence as well, they love this Jesus that says, we're going to go from point A of incarnation Christmas, and we're going to go to point B, which is Easter, and we're just going to miss everything in the middle of it. We're going to love the Jesus who, who ultimately heals and saves, but we're going to miss the Jesus who walks with the lame and the broken. 
Right? This is the Jesus that makes logical sense, that has a divine perspective, that knows the end of the story and can live in that story. But Garden of the Gethsemane brings that divine Jesus, the God Jesus, into reality, into the present day, and shows us a Jesus who asked Peter, James, and John, stay awake with me, please. I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Garden of Gethsemane shows Jesus who knows what's going to happen tomorrow and is dealing with the agony of it today. Of all the hard things, and what's really remarkable about this, I guess is the question of if you knew tomorrow was going to be so good, are you still willing to suffer today for it? Imagine what's on Jesus' mind. Why Jesus might be anxious. Why Jesus might not want to be in this experience. Besides the fact that none of us would want to be in that experience. None of us like to face the threat of death. None of us want to be hungry after, you know, church on Sunday. We don't like discomfort. We don't like hard things. We want it to be very simple. We want it to be very easy. And Jesus is in the midst of a very human situation. But the divine perspective is telling him, or maybe he's worried about, um, how quickly his followers will fall back into old patterns. For three years, he's had this cohort of men and women who have been following him around, attracting crowds of thousands, and they've been doing the healings, and they've been doing the miracles, but they've been teaching these very countercultural teachings. A lot of, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye is the system of justice, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for your enemy. And if someone asks for your shirt, give them your jacket too. Right? Overwhelm them with love. Overwhelm them with grace. Your role is to act as God's forgiving agent in this world. And, and how long does it take for the sword to come out after Jesus' death? It, we don't even make it to the crucifixion. They come and arrest Jesus in the garden. And Peter, who is the rock, right? This is the guy the church is going to be built on, who's supposed to take all of Jesus' teachings— and continue living them out, continue teaching them, continue building this kingdom up through the Holy Spirit. Peter, the rock, is the first one who, when Jesus gets arrested, the first thing he does is resort to violence. He takes out his sword, and Jesus rebukes him. But then 30 years later, there's an uprising of Jewish revolutionaries who want to take on Rome in the traditional way. And they get out their swords, and they get out their arrows, and they get out their spears, and they try and kick the Romans out, and well, you know what happens in history when that happens. We get thousands upon thousands of people who get slaughtered. And I wonder if Jesus had all those people in his mind as he's agonizing that he can die for them and give them a better way forward. Or he can be comfortable and let this cup pass from him. I wonder if Jesus is agonizing and fearful, worried, nervous, just upset over the idea that his three most trusted friends here, James, John, the sons of thunder, Peter, who is the rock that the church will be built on, can't even bother to stay awake for a little while while their best friend is going through this incredible trial. And look, none of us like to be alone, period, except for maybe all the introverts in the room, but right, none of us really like to be alone when we're going through hard things. And here is somebody who is on their deathbed, has explained this to them, has told them about what's going to happen, and they can't stay awake through them. I wonder if he's nervous because 
as he said earlier in the Gospels, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Maybe not in the hereafter, but maybe everyone who says, Lord, Lord, maybe everyone who comes to church, everyone who worships and claims Christianity, but doesn't have the perseverance or the faith to stay awake while their best friend is suffering. I wonder if Jesus is nervous because his followers are going to abandon those who are worried about tomorrow, who are fearful about tomorrow, who are anxious about tomorrow, because they're going to go back to self-preservation. See, we claim Christianity, and many of us look forward to the hereafter, the, the further tomorrow of saying we have eternal life, we have eternal victory, we have resurrection, we conceptualize it, we talk about it, we claim it. But how many of us are willing to go through the agony that it takes to get there? The hard things of not only the, the life transfer, not only the, the hereafter, but Jesus talks about the kingdom. He's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about what the world ought to look like. What sacrificing ourselves, what taking our cross and bearing it really means. And so how many of us who claim Christianity really only like Christianity because it lets me pass over the hard things? Pass over the agony, pass over the sacrifice, passing over the hard things that it takes to get to tomorrow. So, I mean, we say, well, we know what happens tomorrow in the hereafter. We know what eternal life in heaven looks like, and so therefore we're willing to live like that today. That's fine. But what if tomorrow means crucifixion? What if tomorrow means giving up some dearly held prejudice or belief that you have because it helps somebody today. What if tomorrow is crucifixion where you have to uh, give of your own precious hard-earned income because it makes somebody else's tomorrow better? What if tomorrow is sacrificing your time and your own feelings and your own vulnerability for somebody who is so nervous about tomorrow that they're agonizing today? Are we able to do the hard things? Are we able to agonize now so that tomorrow is better? Let me ask you, besides the Garden of Gethsemane, when I say garden, what's the first image that pops up in your head from the Bible? You have, you have muffled voices, so thank you for yelling. Garden of Eden. Um, right, that's the first garden image that comes up, and it is two people who are given the opportunity to faithfully live forever persevering in faith, trusting in God's way of saying, if you do this, this will all work out. And what's the empire, what's the choice that was made there? Choice was personal satisfaction in the moment. And the choice was not living in light of, of tomorrow, it was, I don't want to do the hard things now, and so I'm going to go ahead and take what I want. I'm going to go ahead and do what's right for me in my way right here and right now. I'm not going to look for tomorrow. I'm not going to live today in light of tomorrow. I'm going to do the easy thing right now so, so that I can be happy now. I can, I can not have to agonize. And we see where that got us. Right? We see the Cain and Abel story in which, well, I could, I could look at tomorrow and everything that I've learned from this experience. I could make myself better and I could live in light of tomorrow today so that tomorrow will be better. But instead, I'm just going to do what's easy for me right now. I'm going to take out my brother because that will certainly help. Right, we see through human history, we see through scriptural history, that human beings are not always great at perseverance. And we're not great at living in agony. And we're not great at sacrifice. We are really good at personal preference. 
and we are really good at doing what makes our personal self, our life easier. We are not great at keeping awake when others are suffering. And so here in Jesus, we see, yes, this divine perspective, what it looks like when we see the bigger picture of grace, the bigger picture of forgiveness, and the strength that that can give us to make it through the hard things. And Jesus shows us, Jesus reverses what happens in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and shows us what it looks like when we persevere to do the hard things, when we have faith enough in the end goal that we can make it through the hard things here and now. Jesus shows us this and invites us to ask the same question of, are we willing to live today in light of tomorrow? And I ask us, are, are we willing, if we knew everything that happened tomorrow, are we willing to live like it today? Would it, does it bring us too much agony to think about the whole bigger picture of God's kingdom and, and what that needs, what that requires of us in the moment? Does it bring us too much agony or, or in Jesus' victory? Does Jesus point us to a greater picture of tomorrow that gives us the faith that we need to do the hard things today? Hard things like staying awake. Staying awake when, when our neighbors are suffering. Staying awake when there are people who are so worried about tomorrow that they can't function today. Staying awake when when we've been filled ourselves, I think that may be the hardest thing. I, there's a reason why I lifted up those answers of the timestamp. You know, you get to 4.30 and you've had a full day. You're full of all the experiences that have happened. You're full of the emotions that you've carried. You're full of the obligations you have. And, and most of us are still looking to uh, at least six more hours or so of thinking, I still have more to do. And I'm already full and there's not a whole lot I have left to give. And the disciples, I'm sure, were full from the Passover feast. They'd been satiated with all their needs, and they thought they'd already been asked to do enough. And Jesus says, I just need you to stay awake one more hour. I need you to persevere through the hard things for just a little while longer, because you'll see the benefit of what it brings. So in the garden, we are asked to kneel with Jesus. We are asked to stay awake for the coming kingdom. We are asked to stay awake with our eyes upon Jesus over anything else. And we are asked the very simple yet difficult question. Are you willing to do the hard things today so that tomorrow might be better? Can we pray? Lord God, you have shown us the end of the story. We know there is a city without gates because no one is afraid of each other. We know there is a world where sunshine is the name of the game every day, all day, because you are continuously with us to illuminate the good around us and show us joy. Lord, you have shown us, that, told us that there is a place for us that you are preparing for us. Everything about this end goal is good. Everything about it is right. And so, Lord, why are we not trying to bring that to existence right now? Why are we so afraid of sacrificing just a little bit of ourselves, of staying awake to the needs around us, so that we could start to see some of that beauty and glory today? God, give us the courage and the strength that when we kneel in our garden 
And there's a cup that comes to us that says, here is a hard thing. And when you do it, you will see the glory of the Lord in more fullness than you ever have. Help us to drink from that cup so that our world may look more like your world than it does today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.